Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why you would call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel a little bit at our weakest. Harry and Meghan have released their new documentary on Netflix and have been receiving a lot of negative comments directed their way because of it. Is it because the public just love to hate this couple as they try and live their lives? And former DJ for the Ellen DeGeneres show, Stephen Twitch Boss, committed suicide. Everyone thought he was a happy-go-lucky guy. Left many shocked and confused as to why. Just because he looked happy and all his social media posts were, and while he was performing, doesn't mean he wasn't silently fighting a battle inside. With all this happening, we speak with PR and pop culture expert Elisa Freeman to help make sense of all of it. And the opioid epidemic continues to claim lives of Canadians and potentially more in the future as more of these drugs are hitting the streets. But is there a safer option for those addicted? Can we safely provide regulated dosages and dangerous and addictive substances like fentanyl? Or is this a pipe dream? Alexandra Holton and Ashley Smoke both work with addicts and street-level transactions. And we look into what drugs are really hitting the streets now, how people are responding to it, and a safe supply for opioids could work help temper this ongoing crisis. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. that it is time that we stepped up. Because if you look at the problem of community safety that we're facing right now on the transit system, on the streets, and some of the incidents we've seen, a great number of them are related to mental health issues. Tory says the And welcome to the show. We were just listening to Mayor John Tory, the mayor of Metro Toronto, and uh, talking about uh, the issue as it relates to uh, mental health and crime. We have issues there in uh, here in Toronto with our transit system and safety on the transit system. It all seems to come down to mental health and addiction and access to drugs. And that's kind of where we're at this evening. And we are listening to At Your Best, as you know, and we're trying to find show uh, stories that depict people at their best and then some maybe not at their best. And I think what we're talking about tonight really is people trying to survive trying to get through, trying to make it, you know, to the next day without harming themselves, harming someone else, and just trying to to stay out of harm's way, if you will. That's maybe where the term harm reduction came from. The idea of being able to help someone who's in a difficult place, perhaps not by providing a solution that is good for everybody, but works well enough for the person who's suffering for now. Sometimes that one or two beers when someone's suffering from alcohol um, substance abuse, then perhaps that one or two beers just for that moment might be something that's okay for now, for the moment, to help them get over that short-term peak of making decisions that may or may not save a life. You know, we're talking about patients. You know, I deal with mental health and addiction issues. I deal with, I, I, mean, I provide coaching for corporations and, and uh, their employees. I see mental health and addiction at so many different levels. And I can tell you that I've got patients that are waiting to see psychiatrists for up to 11 months just to get on the right medications. People who, in fact, require medical intervention because their, their situation, their mental health, their imbalance is really driven more by a chemical issue than it is, in fact, their decision or their reasons for the making the hard choices that they make to make help make their pain go away. The demand for mental health services is surged beyond anyone's wildest dreams. According to a recent poll by Canadian Mental Health Association, a quarter of all people in Ontario were seeking mental health support in the month of February. That article goes back to tracing the, um, the time just after the, the, the last surge, right? Back in March of last year. A quarter of the people in Ontario, February of last year, were searching for help. That number hasn't gone down. The pandemic has forced more people into situations where they're looking for some form of help. Crisis line calls, the volumes have surged. People just trying to get by, trying to get the help they need and not able to find it. In-person visits to the organization's crisis centers across the country from 3,600 to 2,600, from 2019 to 20 and to 2021, 
right? The quarantine guidelines have changed in-person visits, so the numbers are dropping. People aren't going to their appointments. There were between 51,769 calls to support line in 2020 to 2021, an increase of 16% over the 1920 same period. And 22,000 from April to September of 2022 on track to surpass the year before. The increase is similar to what's being experienced in hospitals and clinics and methadone centers and any form of mental health support or addiction support facility. And the providers, those that are trying to provide the care beyond, pushed way beyond their ability to cope and comprehend and help people deal with the things they need to get help with. Beth Mitchell, who she's the CEO of Middlesex Branch of the Canadian Mental Health Association in London, Ontario, our friends in London. You can only provide good services if you take care of yourself, she says. So certainly as an employer, we try to help people take a break. Later on in the show, by the way, we're going to talk about employees burning out. We need to help these providers, these medical providers, healthcare providers, with the, the schedule and with the opportunity to get the help they need, to get the breathing room that they need. There was a time during the pandemic when I was seeing people, whether it was coaching or um, uh, uh, providing therapy, I started at nine o'clock in the morning. I was still working by 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night, seeing people on the half hour, only taking a break to use the bathroom, have a quick something to eat and stretch my legs. After a year and a half of that, I felt what the burnout was like. And I immediately started to switch from half of my day doing therapy to half of my day doing therapy and half of my day doing coaching, as opposed to my full day providing more of the therapy than coaching. I was just getting burnt out. I just couldn't, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I know what to do. I know how to hold it all together. I'm just one person. And I live under the comforts of a pretty decent office with lots of technology and you know the ability to get up and move around whenever I want. I'm not in a hospital setting or a halfway house or in some you know situation where it's just not as comfy and cozy. And it's difficult day after day after day to help people that are in need of help. You, you know, at some point you just wonder if the advice you're giving and the support you're providing is what they need. Are you still being empathetic? Are you still being able to understand? There are times where I find myself having to sit back going, I think I could have done a better job, but I was so, I don't know, caught up in my own trying, my own thoughts of trying to survive the stress of that day. Because after all, all of our, all of us healthcare providers and first line responders, we're, we're all human. Every one of us. We all have the ability to do great work. And we all have the ability to make mistakes when we're not at our best. And we're talking about people in a, in, a, in a healthcare system from coast to coast across this great country who are having a very difficult time meeting the demands of the people that come to see them. Trying just to fit them into a schedule. I, I know I have friends of mine that are psychologists and work in clinical settings and, and, and they're, they're working 12, 13 hours a day and still not touching the surface. And I guess that's the most frustrating part for all of us that provide care and support therapy. Even in my coaching function, I find that more people are reaching out for stuff that may be a little more kind of therapeutic than coaching and the, you know, motivational stuff. So I think we're all trying to find our way back from all of this. Those that are in need of the service, the mental health care, addiction care, just general help in trying to get through the day, trying to get back to being at your best. But those that provide the care also need the support and the time and the room to do the things that they need to do to keep themselves strong. If I don't take care of myself and keep my stuff in check, I've got mental health issues. I've got stuff I got to deal with, real life diagnosed stuff. And I deal with it every day because if I don't deal with it every day, I'm not of any, I have no value to my patients, to my clients, to my family, to myself, more than anything else. So what I'm suggesting here is understand that we have a broken system. Understand that we're dealing in a situation now where the, the, the care providers, those in the mental health and, and, uh, and wellness world, we're getting to a point where we're kind of at our breaking point too. So just give us a little bit of space, a little bit of time. And if you're employed, if you're being employed by someone, and that's the job you have at the hospital and so on, make sure you're getting in the room you need to breathe and have the opportunity to catch your breath, find your neutral corner, so you can come back and be the best that you can be 
to help those that are in need. When we come back from break here, we're going to talk about the Meghan Markle and Prince Harry Netflix documentary. Everybody's talking about it. Some people have great things to say about it. Some not so much. I'm uh, wondering, you know, we're going to look at it, see what it's like. We're going to talk to an expert, right? So you're able to um, be able to uh, get back and talk about this together here and see where they're coming from. And, you know, are they, are they right in terms of not getting the privacy that they need? Or in fact, just by being on a Netflix documentary, does that really talk about the fact that maybe the privacy they're seeking isn't really such a big deal? I don't know. I, I didn't see it yet. I'm just reading off the of some notes and some some media, some newspaper articles, and so on. Uh, my wife Pumpkin, she in fact saw it. Uh, we had some mixed discussions about it as well. She's a big uh, big Royals fan. I feel they're just doing it for money, and so no, I I I don't agree with them. I think at the moment, I think Harry needs to mend broken bridges with his family. I'm sure there has been a lot that's gone wrong but there is in every family and you just shut up and talk amongst yourselves. You don't air it to the world. So, uh, well, you know, if you have a disagreement with your family, if I have a disagreement with my family, you have a disagreement with your family, it's probably not so public and nobody knows except probably other family members and maybe your close friends. But when you come out and you share it with the whole world and then you talk about wanting your privacy, Kind of that's where we're at here. That's the discussion I want to have tonight with my expert. Her name is Elisa Friedman. She is a public relations and pop culture expert. We're going to be talking about Harry and Meghan's uh, documentary, the uh, five big moments of the first episode, and uh, talking about uh, things like uh, Meghan's father and uh, things like how they met and how cute it was. And she had bunny ears, and Harry thought that was so cute. And people are saying, like the guy's a prince. What's he doing on social media? Well, you know what? I bet you being a prince, living the life he led and was leading, pretty maybe kind of lonely, right? You don't get to walk around and just go anywhere you want whenever you feel like it. And they were so, you know, cute together that they just, you know, fell in love and then began their courtship. And all along, though, they'd have to know, she'd certainly have to know, he certainly knew that being part of a royal family meant that this private little cutesy thing was going to get out there pretty soon and everyone was going to be talking about it and now that they are we don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing but we're going to ask elisa freeman hi elisa how are you i am fine how are you doing we're doing great thank you so much for joining us this evening um you know this uh i gotta tell you i i'm um I'm not really a uh, big fan of, uh, you know, family stories, royal family stories, wealthy family stories, Trump family stories, you know, family stories. I mean, maybe that's because I got a little sensitivity with my own family stories, but uh, maybe that's for you and I another night. Uh, but right now, getting to this, getting to this documentary. Um, so if you're looking for privacy, is this the first thing you want to do is make a documentary and put it on Netflix? Well, you know, that's such an interesting question, right, Yona, because, you know, here they are, they wanted to escape to the U.S. in order to have, <clears throat> excuse me, privacy. So then they get $100 million from Netflix, and they put out this uh, the series. So they actually had to put out a statement clarifying, well, it's, you know, there's the difference between privacy and isolation. Oh, so I get it. First, you want a privacy and nobody to bother you. And then you decide that what you really don't want is to be isolated. So it seems that they've had to do, Harry, you know, Harry and Meghan have had to do a lot of backtracking ever since they decided to sort of, you know, go public and air their dirty family laundry. And sometimes, you know, when they've told, uh, they had the big uh, Oprah interview, there's a number of... Um, uh, facts that were sort of uh, twisted a bit that they had to backtrack on. And as a result, you know, that's something that you just don't do to Oprah. If you're going to go tell your life story, don't use, uh, don't use Oprah without telling her the truth. One thing that, that's, that interests me, though, you know, once you've aired your dirty laundry and once you've become the number one, you know, streamed show uh, on Netflix, the biggest stream show they've ever had, where do you go from here? Sort yeah, of like, okay. you know, what is the end game? Is it, is it, you know, if there's some sort of revenge play here, that's fine. But how often can you actually tell that narrative? And does anybody care anymore after all that? So what interests me is, is, you know, A, 
that they felt comfortably airing, you know, their family squabbles? And B, what does that mean going forward for their own reputations? Okay, so uh, <laughs> I guess I'm supposed to be answering your questions. I don't know. Well, uh, but, yeah. Uh, no, no. But seriously, <laughs> let me let's go backwards though. Let, can we can we just step back to something because I'm still gagging a little bit on the hundred million dollars. Is that what they got for doing this uh, series? Yeah. So you know, if okay, if, okay. Yeah, so hang on, hang on, Lisa, 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 Yeah, Lisa, yeah, Lisa, listen, you're my new best friend. Listen to me. If I had a hundred million, I don't know about you. I don't know what kind of lifestyle you had, but if I had a hundred million dollars, does there have to be another one? You know, it's interesting because when Netflix or any network gives you $100 million, you better come with the goods. Yeah, no, and exactly. I think that at some point they did come with the goods in the last few episodes that came out. And yeah. I was just reading the most recent reviews. You know, Rotten Tomatoes gives us a 44%. So there you go. But, uh, which is a pretty low score. And, exactly. then, and, and, then, and then the other thing, too, is... You know, if their intent is to destroy the monarchy, I think that the monarchy has suffered much worse over the hundreds of years that it's that it's existed. You know, do I agree with everything about the monarchy? No, I don't. But I think that if you know, you're going to get a hundred million dollars, you're going to make your one play. You know, you have one shot to do it. Yeah. You know, what do you do next? And really, what does this actually say about your relationship? I mean, is there any sort of sense of reparations that could actually happen between Harry and his family? Yeah. Do, do you think that, you know, after all that he has been through and been through together with his family, that this is the way he wants it to go for the rest of his life? I don't think so. I, I think that these are just sort of instant gratification moments for them. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, you know, I don't know either one of them. I can't really opine on someone I've not even had a conversation with. But you know, one would think that um, they get to share their story. They get to make a hundred million dollars. She is an actress at heart. Uh, does love to be in front of the camera by by nature. Uh, Harry, maybe not so much. And I got to listen, I, I got I got a huge family and there's times where we're all not talking to each other. And I certainly have sleepless nights and I'm you know, I'm not dealing with a monarchy here. I mean, he's got a at the end of the night, like when he's all alone, there's got to be something eating away at him inside and, and just it not feeling right, even though maybe he's feeling, you know, vindicated, whatever. But at some point, it just must be uncomfortable, wouldn't you think? I would think so. And and I think what's interesting is that when I read these uh, articles or I read these Instagram posts, I'm most interested in the comments. You know, what is public yeah. perception about all of this? And it seems to be split about, I would say, 70-30. 70% is, you know what, we really don't care. Um, there's no reason for you to tell this story, and that's fine. Please go away. And the other 30% sort of heralds them and looks up to them and says, well, you know, it's about time you expose what the monarchy is all about. Really? Is that what the monarchy is all about? I don't think so. And I don't think that Harry and Meghan are going to define that in the eyes of the public. And what's interesting is also is, you know, what are we hearing from the palace about all of this? So isn't that interesting when you talk about, you know, your own family? There are people who really want to talk about it, and there are others that are simply like keep a stiff upper lip and ignore it. And I don't think it's that the palace is ignoring it, but they're certainly not going to dignify it by giving it any further air and creating more statements out of it. Because you have to know that once your your series has run the course on Netflix, it's on to the next. So then what? So why should the, uh, the, the palace actually dignify um, anything with a response? So it really does sort of highlight different family dynamics between, you know, sort of, sort of like the Hatfields and the McCoys, isn't it? Exactly. You, know, you have the half of the family who really wants yeah. to, you know, blow things up, and the other half of the family says, do what you need to do, but we're still going to carry on. Okay, we were in a conversation with uh, Alyssa uh, Freeman, and uh, Alyssa and I were talking, have been talking about the uh, Harry and Meghan documentary on Netflix. Alyssa, thank you so much. Welcome back. Um, one last question before we get maybe to the Twitch story here. The, the behavior that we see with Harry and Meghan, um, you kind of mentioned it a little bit ago. Uh, in terms of straining the relationship between the royals and, and, and him and, and Meghan, um, can you walk back from that, you think? I mean, how do, I guess that would have to kind of be a public thing, wouldn't you think, at this point? 
Oh my goodness. I don't know how you walk back from it. And, and if so, yes, I think it would have to be very, very public because everybody's so interested, right? I mean, isn't it so, it's almost like watching a car wreck. People just up on every story, every uh, movement, uh, every, you know, all the sentences, all the phrasing that, you know, they're using and they're parsing it. And what does it really mean? And, and it's so interesting how we look at other people's lives when maybe ours are not so exciting and, you know, take real stock into, you know, these two people who we have absolutely no connection with other than what we sort of see and hear on the in uh, in the media. I think if there was to be reconciliation, you know, knowing these two, I think it would be another Netflix series, if you ask me. Maybe that's the the part two, Alyssa. The um, give me an idea if you were if you were representing, or let's say Harry and Megan called you up, right? Your public relations, and you know, I guess you you help people kind of get out of the mess sometimes as part of your gig. Um, what advice would you give them? Their their feet are in the mud, maybe, perhaps, maybe not. Depends on who you're talking to. What advice would you give them on a going forward strategy? The first advice I would give is stop paying attention to so many, like to all the comments and stop reading your own reviews. I think that you can get a false sense of self um, when you choose what to read about yourself and uh, what you choose to ignore. So, you know, there's that. There's many politicians and prime ministers of this country who absolutely just don't even, I don't I don't think many of them opened up a, a newspaper for fear. Not for fear, but I mean, it can really set you in a mood once you read about what everybody else has to say. I also would ask, you know, what is their real objective with this? That's what mm-hmm. I would ask, because it's really um, important to understand in order to guide a client what they want to achieve. Is it that they want to... Um, they want to uh, sort of shine up their reputation. Uh, they want to keep going on the same narrative track. They want to completely do a 180 and uh, have a big reconciliation story. I think that you also have to understand what people's motives are and how far mm-hmm. they're willing to push their story. So some people really want to come out and make a big splash, but all they want to do is tell you know half of the story. You can't do that. You really have to tell the whole story. Kind of like your day in court, right? Well, 100%. I mean, either you're going to do it or you're not. I mean, listen, in public relations, anytime you engage in a media relations campaign, there's 20% reason not to do it. And sometimes that's just the part of you, you know, being bold and being afraid of the fallout. So as long as you're prepared for the fallout and as long as you're you're prepared to know how to answer those questions and be consistent in your answers, and I think that consistency is the big thing that I would tell them. You know, you can't just make up something because it's um, suitable at at that time because it just sounds good and it's maybe very clickbaity and uh, gets you a few headlines. Because if you can't back it up at the end of the day, it all comes back at you you and what does that do it ruins your credibility for anything that you might do going forward yeah no kidding you know and if they were looking for public sympathy i'm not sure they got it and if they did you know you're bound to get listen with every if anytime you want somebody to vote or kind of provide an opinion on something they hear especially you know family squabble or any kind of disagreement you know there's going to be likers there's going to be haters right so you bet you gotta you gotta have thick skin i think to to play that game, right? Um, I want to pivot here a little bit, if I can, with you. I'm, if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Alyssa Friedman. She, Freeman, uh, she's a public relations and pop culture expert. Uh, and we're talking about, we were just talking about the Megan and uh, Harry story. Uh, I want to spin here a little bit, if I can, here, move around. Um, Stephen Twitch boss, just, uh, you know, to see him on air, to watch his work, to watch him be interviewed, um, see any of his uh, YouTube stuff, the more candid stuff. Um, just a lovely, a lovely young man. Just looked like the world, you know, the world was his oyster. He had everything going for him. Um, became a, a big player in a, in a, in a big media program, um, you know, and then takes his own life. Uh, people are remarkably shocked. Um, are you? Yes, I was. I mean, when I saw that headline come across as a news alert on my phone, it really stopped me. And I think it really hit people hard because here's sort of a a pop cultural icon that many uh, saw when he was first on uh, So You Think You Can Dance and what a a talented, talented man he was in that regard. And it's Mm -hmm. also he's 40 years old. He had his whole life ahead of him. And not only that, but he was 
um, aligned with Ellen DeGeneres. And that is a very, very popular platform on so many levels. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he was in our public consciousness, um, whether it was on Instagram, dancing with his wife, Alison Holker, whether it was being a judge on a show, whether it was DJing on Ellen, and then eventually becoming executive producer, his trajectory seemed high and bright. So when you hear about something like this, it really does give you pause and in some cases shakes you to the core. You know, we hear stories, we've heard stories over the years um, about, uh, you know, famous people, uh, Robin Williams, to, to name to name one, um, you know, famous comedians, actors, uh, athletes, uh, people that you would think are on top of their game. And it just brings to mind for me, you know, I, I, I have a pretty extensive uh, youth practice. I deal with youth in crisis and I also coach youth that are except, you know, exceptionally talented in certain areas. Uh, but, it, it, you know, the more, frankly, the, the kids that have the most going for them, are the ones that when they when they get a B instead of an A are more are more likely to want to hurt themselves than than the kids who constantly get C's and B's and whatever it's not such a big deal. Is there potentially some fall here? Was there maybe something? I mean, you can speculate Is something like this maybe fueled by a secret that might be coming out or like how does someone just? I mean, I know what causes a person's mental health to you know to to deal with this at least the best I can uh, through through treating them, but. In, in a famous person's life, the people that you watch and follow and and, and study, um, what has to happen inside? Do you think for this to for the trigger to flip like this? Well, you know, I think that something like this just doesn't happen. I think that something like this has always been there, and I think with many people, especially when you talk about it in your own practice with high achieving kids, I think there's something called masking where you put um which is a term obviously you well know which yeah. you know where you put on that happy face uh where you need to be and you're always trying to please people um at the right time and but when you get alone with your own thoughts you're really not that happy so i think that you know a lot of kids these days do this because you know we as parents have you know, especially this generation, you know, put them in every program known to mankind so that they can, you know, have every experience that the, exactly. they could possibly have. But yep. maybe, you know, we set people up for to, for failure. You know, maybe when we think that the bar is really high and you always have to uh, leap over it, that's a hard thing to maintain. I mean, a lifetime in a career, just life, has hills and valleys, you know, nobody's life is always on this, you know, star bound trajectory. And I think it's the ability to deal with those ups and downs is what keeps us healthy. So when you do run into situations that don't treat you the way you think that they're going, they should turn out, you know, you still put on that happy face, but you're not doing really anything to deal with the turmoil that's going on inside you. And I, and I have to speculate that that's probably what happened to Twitch. You know, he had reached a bit of a pinnacle as uh, an executive producer of a, a huge. Where, uh, where do you go from, where do you go from there? Yeah. And then where do you where go, do you go? And I think that yeah. there always is somewhere to go, but um, having to always feed into the public spotlight and feed into the perception that people have of you. That's a tough gig to have 24 hours, seven days a week. I'm talking to uh, Alyssa Friedman, and uh, we're talking about uh, uh, the Twitch story. We were talking about Megan and Harry. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining me tonight. We'd love to have you come back uh, for stories that uh, we think your uh, expertise will make a little bit easier for people to understand what's going on and uh, certainly made it easier for me. So I certainly appreciate it. All the employee well-being metrics were off the charts. Uh, reductions in tr stress, two-thirds had a reduction in burnout, better what's called positive affect, their emotions, much better work-life balance, less conflict between work and family, less fatigue, exercising longer, fewer sleep problems, um, better life satisfaction. So pretty much everything we measured, we had more than 60 variables we were looking at in this study. Things went really well. That's uh, Juliet Shore, a professor of sociology at Boston University, who was a researcher on the global study on a four-day work week. Uh, Shore said that in almost all scenarios, employee burnout, burnout greatly reduced and quality, quality of life increased without a drop in productivity. Can you do as much in four days as you do in five? I certainly think so. If you're well organized, that's what we want to hear from you tonight. Give us a call. Give us a text. 877-399-9898. That's where you, Canada, that's where you get to jump out. 
say hello to me. By the way, I'll give a real shout out to my friend May in Vancouver and to Billy in Edmonton and to the three girls, Katie, Sue, and Brenda, who are all in residence at uh, Western University in London. Yo, hope everyone is well, staying out of trouble and getting ready for the holidays. Uh, getting ready for the holidays. Like, There's people at work that are just, you know, can hardly wait for the holiday season to come about. And then there's a whole bunch, many who I hear from, that are freaking out because of all the work they're going to have to do when they come back. What we're seeing is we're seeing employers, and you know, it's not necessarily all on the employer, right? We're seeing employers having a very difficult time keeping up enough staff to operate their businesses. I know some folks in the if, in hospitality industry are only open uh, three or four days a week because they can only staff for three or four days a week. They're now closed at breakfast and lunch and only open at dinner because they only have enough staff to serve dinner. I know people in office environments and businesses where they're, they're, they're cutting down on the amount of output because they can't find employees to do the job. People just don't want to work here in Canada for some reason. And when they do want to work, they want the star, the moon and the sky. And that's okay. As long as we're being reasonable about it. But right now, those that are in the employment world, those are our, that are being, that are employed and going to work every day. Burnout is big time. Uh, there's a company called Clio. Um, and they're able to do some Burnaby, BC. People at Clio, they can take their dogs to work, have access to a flexible paid time off program. Staff at Schneider Electric in Canada can save up time, uh, prepay their time off that the company will augment for a paid leave of absence down the road. You can save up for that. So if you're having a rough time, right? Capital One gives employees an invest in yourself. Um um, day every month to do whatever uh, recharges uh, their souls, right? There are su just some examples of what employees across Canada are doing to prevent the burnout, right? That's what we're doing. We're just trying to prevent the burnout here. And, um, but in the, but the Jewel and Clio's wellness program, the one we talked about in Vancouver there, Burnaby, is the flexible paid off time program. So instead of allotting vacation time by years of service, the legal practice management software company uh, allows for flexibility, flexibility, excuse me, at employees' discretion. So, for example, need six weeks of vacation next year? Fine. Maybe offset it by taking less time off in this year or the year after. So we don't have a lot of guardrails in terms of how much or how frequently employees need time off. We just don't know. But employees are burning out, and they're not just burning out because they don't have enough time to work. They're burning out because there's not enough people doing the work, right? So we're, we're, we're not able to, we're not able to, um, uh, you know, we're, we're not able to take the breaks we need uh, in, in, a, in the normal course, right? Because to do so would require us to not to actually get through the workflow in some reasonable time. Well, I've got people calling me on a regular basis that are having all kinds of issues with anxiety, sleeplessness. They're not eating, self-medicating, drinking a little more, smoking, smoking a little more weed, uh, taking, you know, sleeping pills that may not be prescribed to them to try to get sleep because they're dreading going to work the next day. And they're asking me, you know, what do I do, Yona? You know, what do I do? How do I get past this dread? Well, number one, you got to remember one thing. It's a job. It's a job. And unless you're in my job, you're not really saving lives. So you got to make sure that you take care of yourself and you got to be able to have conversations with your supervisors. You got to be able to go to the HR department if such a department exists. There are laws, there are rules against how many hours. There's rules against uh, time off and evenings off and being required to. Uh, there's legislation, new legislation last year that makes, you know, that allows for people to turn their phones off in the evening and not lose their jobs over it in most cases, unless that's what you sign up for. And you got to remember, when you take on new things, you take on new jobs, new functions, new opportunity for growth, because what happens when there's not enough people on the job, employers, when they're smart and they're using their heads, they try to help people find the energy and the motivation to do the job of two when it's only one. So one way to do that is, number one, give them more money, give them time off, all that kind of stuff, but a better title. People feel better about themselves, whether you believe it or not, with a better title. So if you're no longer the junior on the team, you're now the team because there isn't a junior and a senior. So why don't you become the senior person on that team? You'd think by default, right? So the ability for employers to recognize what it takes for an employee to deal with their day-to-day -day stuff, that's the trick. 
That's the key. All kinds of companies have people and culture people, HR people, you know, experts that are help, you know, help employees get comfortable and deal with issues of, you know, financial issues and time off and bereavement time and all that stuff. But we're not doing a great job right now. I mean, hopefully it's going to get better and better as time goes on. We're not doing a great job of this mental health burnout time. And we're talking about people who are sick. I, I, I coach for one company, it's got 250 employees and over a two and a half month period, six of their key 15 were in rotating days off because the pressure was so great and they were just constantly, you know, one got COVID and never got really over it because they, before they got a chance to really rest, they were back at work or they were working while sick, like working while sick. Come on, give me a break, guys. Not a good thing to do. If you're sick, you're sick. Unplug your phone, turn off your computer. If you're sick enough to work, you're sick enough to work. I get it. I get it. You're looking at me go, yeah, but you don't know my boss, Yona. And, and because, you know, I, I lose my job or they'll write me up. Nah, there's laws for like, against this kind of stuff, right? Especially these days. So many of us, so many of us have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. And harder and harder when you go to work and they don't get you. They don't feel you, as they say. They don't understand what that physical and mental burnout feels like. And, and, you know, and you're, when your boss sees you sitting at your desk, not getting up for lunch, all the companies that I provide coaching and, and, and HR type um, services for, it's mandatory. It's mandatory that every employee get up from their desk for at least 30 to 45 minutes at lunch, whether they want to eat or not, and get away from their workstation, their desk or whatever. And if they're at home, they need to log off. And the IT department can tell if they're logging on or off. So you have to monitor it. You have to somewhat babysit them, for lack of better words. Supervise them is, I think, the term. To make sure that your workforce isn't burning out. If, if you were running a machine shop, it's my greatest uh, you know, analogy. If you're running a machine shop, you would make sure that the machines were running and well-greased and oiled and functioning and all the spare parts in, in place and everything ready to go. So it can run and run and run and run and run. But even a machine you have to turn off once in a while to give it more oil, more grease, check the sprockets and all the different kinds of things. I don't know. You can tell I'm not a mechanical guy. Well, if you're a human-based organization, guess what? You got to check that they're well-oiled and that they're moving properly and that their heads are in the right place and that they're thinking clearly. And that they've got their head on straight and thinking about the things that they and the safety issues and that they're not tired and exhausted from not sleeping at night because of the pressure that they have from work. It's a thing, a real thing. And it puts you at risk as the employer. It puts the employee and all of their peers at risk when someone comes to work and they're not at their best. Sometimes just the ability to call in and say, hey, Hey, Bob, I'm just not having a great day. I'm going to take the morning off and come in a little bit later. And on the other end, you hear, hey, no problem, Yona. Take what time you need. We'll be in touch. If you need something from us, give us a call. And let us know. We'll be okay without you. That's what they need to hear on the other end, my friends. That's what they need to hear. Anybody lost looking to get found Nowhere when they hear the champion sound Works like a magnet on the people all around Nowhere when they hear the champion sound Anybody loving music up in your town Nowhere when they hear the champion sound Love it when they hear the champion sound Need it when they hear the champion Watch out! Take it on a wild dream Flow through the bloodstream Baby, it will make Yo, yo, yo! Welcome back to the show. Thank you for being with us tonight. This is the part of the show where we talk about strategy skills and things you can learn to just be at you know to help you be at your best we did goals the first night last uh, two weeks ago we did uh, aim how to aim high last week and today we're talking about how to make a plan that's the big part of uh, becoming a champion a guy out the greatest you of all time that's what this show is all about uh want to hear from you uh by the way i want to make a make something uh put something out there if you text us here at 877-399-9898. And tell me why you should be my guest on New Year's Eve. We're going to allow two people to be part of our show on New Year's Eve. We won't be on the sh- we won't be doing a show next week because it's Christmas, but the week after we're doing a live show on New Year's Eve, my buddy Leo and I, and we'd love to have you on our show. So send us a text message. Tell us why you should be on the show, how we can contact you, and uh, we'll see if uh, you make the cut. And if you can, you'll be on radio with me talking about how to be at your best. So you got to make a plan 
and uh, to get what you want out of life, right? If you want to be the best you can be, be the greatest you of all time, you got to have a plan, right? And the benefits of planning, very simple. Creating a plan seems like a bit of an inconvenience, right? But when you want to set out for a journey, you got to know how to get there. Some kind of GPS, right? Some kind of um, some kind of GPS that allows you to um, know if you're going in the right direction. How do you know, right? So here are four specific benefits of planning. If you're able to write them down, great. If not, just try to pay attention. We'll try not to give you too much to consume if you're driving around. But we do have this available on podcasts, so you can hear it some other time if you want to write down all this information later on. So number one, it's improving your productivity. When you know how to get from one place to another, you're less likely to suffer from paralysis, as they say, paralysis by analysis, planning too much, over planning, right? So you improve your productivity when you've got a plan. Number two, it increases your focus so you know what you're aiming for, right? You have to have a target. Can't aim at something if there's no target. So having some kind of focus, and that creates greater self-confidence. So the more plan, now I have People that call me in my, in my uh, coaching practice all the time, uh, especially this time of year, I've got a, a bunch of uh, young people that are in, in university as well as being exceptional at, at their at their skill, which is either athletic or performance. Um, and they'll say to me, you know, like, you know, I, I, I just I just don't know how to get through exams. And also we, we, we set a plan, a study plan, a recreation plan. And the better you go into something with the plan, the more understanding you have of what you're going to do when you and know that you're what you're going to do when you get there and how you're going to get there, the ch- less chance there is of, of, you know, not feeling confident about what you're doing. So when you have a plan and it helps you create your, your, your confidence and it gives you more self-awareness. So to be, when you begin to create a plan for your life, to become a guy, to become the greatest you of all time, to be at your best, you begin to create a plan that lets you understand yourself. It helps you un- uncover some of your passions, your priorities, helps you reflect on your true values. So it's very important to have a plan, create self-confidence, it creates self-awareness, and it just gives you an idea of where you're going to go and how you're going to get there. So along the way, you can check off, you know, as you go through each of the stages, each of the gates, each of the, um, the, the goals that you're trying to accomplish, each of the things that are along your plan. Every time you check one of those off, it's a time to celebrate. That gives you more confidence. You get one after the other after the other. And then you feel better about yourself. So it starts with writing down your plan. You got to write down your goal. So plan starts. This is my goal. I want to be at here and here and here by such and such a period of time. You write it down, right? And be specific. The who, the what, the where, the why. Be specific, not just generally. You know, generally I want to be in a better job making more money by the end of 2024. Okay. What kind of job? Doing what kind of work? Where? What firm? What companies? And it has the plan has to be measurable. You've got to know how you're making how you're making out what the progress looks like. How else will you meet your needs or meet your goals if you don't know what they look like? How to measure them? And of course, when you're setting goals for yourself, they have to be achievable, measurable, achievable. You've got to know that you're setting goals for something that you can actually get to at some point. That you can actually meet those goals. Very important. And it has to be relevant. The goals have to be relevant to what it is you're trying to do. So perhaps it's, I want to lose 30 pounds over the next 12 months to be the greatest you of all time. And if that's the case, make sure that your, your goal setting and your, and your strategy and your plan is relevant to that success. If it's not, if it has nothing to do with you reaching that goal of a certain weight, might be up, might be down, right? However, whatever that goal is, let's say it's losing 30 pounds like I want to do, then the goal has to be relevant to that, that, that ability to lose that weight. Number, the last thing is it has to be time bound. You know, the, the goals that you set for yourself have to have some time limits. So in the first month, I want to do this. Second month, I want to do that, right? I would say if, you're, if, the, if the goal is, is significant enough, you're looking at probably a six to 12 month period in, in, in any real ter- in r- real terms, right? So measure yourself month by month and see where you are or in two week cycles or one week cycles. Measure yourself. Don't look at it daily. Look at it at the end of every week or at the end of every two weeks or at the end of every month, whatever makes sense. So the pros say that once you've decided on a goal, capture it with, um, with some form of, of uh, written documentation, putting it down on paper, right? And then take that goal and 
create it in a, that plan that you're creating, carve it into little pieces, carve it into little chunks. So you're able to achieve little bits at a time. Review your plan on a daily basis if, if you're concerned about staying on track. Don't review your success. Just make sure you're on the right track. So blueprint's no good if you don't if you don't stick with it, right? Next thing to do, next thing they talk about is being able to share your goal with somebody else. Because once you share your goal with somebody else, it makes it real. By doing that, you tell yourself that, you know, I'm sharing this with somebody. It's no longer just something for me. It's something I'm doing and I'm sharing it with my close friend, my buddy. You know, sometimes it's nice to have um, a, um, a workout buddy. If you're in a gym, for example, you can have a buddy in your success, in your success trail too. someone who just, you know, you can reach out to once in a while and say, Hey, you know, just want to let you know how I'm doing sort of, sort of let it like letting your someone close to, you know, that you decided you wanted to quit smoking, not so that they can bug you all the time, but so that you have someone that's going to say, Hey man, you're doing great today. You haven't had a cigarette in two days. That's amazing. But if you keep it to yourself and nobody knows, it's hard for that to happen. It's hard for you to share the successes and sometimes get a bit of a support when you're not doing as well as you want to. So when you share your plan with a friend, having somebody to hold you somewhat accountable helps you stay motivated. And if you're ever tempted to give up, you can call them and say, I don't know, this is killing me. I just, I'm on day five. I really need to have a butt. Like I'm having a hard time here. And they're the ones, the close people in your life, those that love you, those that you lean on for support because you can trust them. They're the ones that are going to say, no, you know what? You'll get through today. Today will today be a better day. Tomorrow will be much easier. Just stick with it. You can do this. And oh, by the way, let's get together tonight and go play racquetball, go for a walk or go for a hamburger, right? Help Help them distract themselves help people distract themselves from um, sometimes falling off their plan. And along with your goal, you need to review daily and weekly planners, right? You, you need to make sure that the long-term goal is achieved by daily successes so that every day you can go home feeling or end your day feeling when you go to bed, feeling like you've accomplished something, like you've accomplished what you set out to do. It's very important. So set a plan, share it with others, make sure it's, it's time, time sensitive so that there's a time limit to it. Make sure that you're acknowledging your successes and you're working on your on the days that aren't so successful so that you make the next day even more successful. It's very important. I've been now saying for almost 20 years, there is no recovery model for people who are dead. We have to meet people where they are. But since 2017, 41,000 overdoses have been reversed in the safe con consumption sites. This is, this is hugely important. That's Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. The clip was her speaking to the press on the many thousands of lives that Safe Supply have saved from overdose. It was made in response to Pierre uh, Polarbear's uh, insensitive video posted during National Addictions Awareness Week. I have two guests joining me this evening, Alexandra Holtham, and Ashley Smoke, and we're going to talk about the safe supply of uh, drugs. Um, is that going to turn the tide of opioid deaths? Is a safe supply for opioid use effective? The experts say, many say it is. Um, those that uh, don't understand, perhaps, don't really know, um, haven't been on the front lines like myself and my guests. Um, you know, whatever you can do, the harm reduction model, whatever we can do to save lives today is what we need to do. And when you can keep somebody away from begging, borrowing, stealing, doing whatever they have to do to get their, their uh, self-medicated uh, supply for the day until they can get the help, until they can wait the 11 months to get a psychiatrist or the 14 months to get into a residential facility paid for by the government, what are they supposed to do in the meantime? Well, as long as they're not hurting themselves or others, experts say if we can get safe drugs in them, like hydromorphone instead of... Um, heroin or, or fentanyl or any of these other horrible drugs that are out there, then that's the thing to do. My guests this evening, Alexandra Holtham, Ashley Smoke, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Pleasure. So we'll uh, we'll play a little bit of, of uh, I forget what that game was. What was that game, the, the little video game we had in the old days, you know, where the, the ball would go back and forth. So we'll take turns going back and forth between the two of you uh, in having this conversation tonight. You know, I, I've been, I've been a, an addiction counselor. I've been working with people in crisis for over four decades. This last 10 years has been 
certainly more grueling uh, for me just as an individual to watch and see uh, people slip through the cracks and end up uh, dead or brain damaged or on life support. Um, first question I have, what are, what are the drugs that you find uh, on the street? The, the, what's, what's on the street right now? Are we still dealing with Oxycontin and, 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 the, and those types of drugs that are, that are then tainted by fentanyl? Are people actually going after fentanyl instead of heroin? Like what's out there and why are we killing ourselves with it? Well, so I, I think fentanyl is what's out there right now. And I, I feel like people are seeking it out, but it's more for, it's more because there's no other options. Heroin is really hard to find and fentanyl is just so, so available that I think once you get it in your system, it's like really hard tolerance wise to, to adjust anything else. Yeah. That's, is that Alexandra? No, this is Ash. Okay, Ashley. Thank you, uh, Ashley. By the Ash, Ashley, by the way, she works with the Ontario Network of People Who Use Drugs and the Canadian Association of People uh, Who Use Drugs. Uh, Alexandra, I'm going to ask you the the next question here. Have you mm-hmm. noticed a change? Have you noticed a change in user habits since the pandemic? Like, are there more, you know are people uh, new faces on the street? More people buying larger amounts? More overdoses? What does it actually look like at the street level? And um, I'm talking to Alexandra Holtum. She's the knowledge mobilization expert with the National Safer Supply Community of Practice and a lead editor at the Drug Hub. Um, What's your take on that? I mean, definitely we've seen uh, a number of changes. Um, For sure with the pandemic, we've certainly seen a serious increase in overdoses and particularly in fatal overdoses. Um, It can be seen unfortunately very blatantly in the overdose in the overdose death statistics uh, and hospitalization data um, that Canada or Health Canada uh, publishes. Um, for example, there was a total of uh, th- over 32,000 uh, apparent um, opioid toxicity deaths. Uh, now that's between January 2016 and June 2022. Um, but what's really sad about that statistic is over actually half of those deaths uh, or a vast number of those deaths have happened actually since COVID uh, started in March of 2022, or sorry, 2020. Um, and even more sadly is a total of, you know, over 3,500 of those deaths have happened even just in since January uh, of this year until June of this year. Um, so, you know, that's that's a whole lot of lives that we're talking about. That's almost 20 to 21 deaths per day uh, since 2016. Yeah, people, I just, people don't get it unless it affects their families. And then when it affects your family, it's kind of too late to get it. Uh, Ashley, do you find that certain drugs are more common, let's say in Ontario, or the trends that we're seeing, you know, nationally? I know that BC uh, was one of the first provinces to really come out with a, a serious overdose deaths, uh, death issue when fentanyl first hit the streets years ago. Um, is is it, um, is, is BC still the, the center of this or is it creeped across the country such that it's a national trend? Oh, it's definitely a national trend. I think I think we see different trends like BC definitely gets it starts a lot of the trends because where it is and like the different ports and like it just there's different reasons, but I feel like the trend is national now. Um it doesn't matter if you're in a rural area, remote area in the city centers Toronto, Vancouver, Saskatchewan, Yukon. I mean, something we also, sorry, I wanted to say something also we haven't talked about yet is the rise in folks using um, things like meth um, and crack cocaine and coke as well has, um, we've seen a a pretty big increase in that, right? And also a lot of cross-contamination with fentanyl in those substances, right? And so folks that might not have been expecting, um, you know, like a down or kind of like a, um, like a down kind of experience um, or even an overdose experience actually ended up getting that because of the contamination. Yeah, I had a I had a young uh, I've had several situations, but last year, not that long ago, uh, a young girl who was uh, smoking uh, weed at a party through a bong, 
and ended up with a fentanyl overdose because somehow it was dusted. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a great, uh, a great uh, thing to bring out here is that street drugs in general across, across the spectrum, cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, ecstasy, if you can find any MDNA, if you can find any, any of that stuff, if it's coming from somebody's basement and they're playing with fentanyl as they cut up other things or make and press pills that look like something else, it's going to cross contaminate exactly what Alexandra said. Um, it's going to end up in the oh. drugs you don't think you, you Yes. Yeah, I just want to be careful, though, because I think sometimes there have been some very sensationalized reports, that particularly in regards to cannabis, I think is one that I've oh, often okay, seen, okay. you know, oh, kind yeah, of very, oh, yeah, very, yeah, okay. um, okay. kind of dramatic, dramatized yeah, oh, yeah, okay, stories, okay, you know, okay. Alexandra, Alexandra, I deal with hundreds of people a month. I deal in therapy. I deal with people in crisis. I'm telling mm -hmm. you that there is there is fentanyl laced everything out there. There's a mm -hmm. report that was done here in Ontario not long ago by the Nurses Association, and they found that 87% of all street drugs contained cross-contamination of some form of um, fentanyl or otherwise. So um, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm just saying, I think cannabis is a bit of a, like, it's just something that I okay. think there's definitely more research out there needed yeah. um, so, on some of the stories I, we see in the news. Actions that we see that have terrorized these people and our communities, they are the result of a failed experiment. This is a, a deliberate policy by woke liberal and NDP governments to provide taxpayer-funded drugs, flood our streets with easy access to these poisons. Well, there you heard it. The clip was taken during a National Addictions Awareness Week last month. In the clip, Polyver uh, is sitting on the edge of a tent city in Vancouver while condemning the safe supply program and voices his belief that it's a failed woke program on the taxpayers' expense. I'm talking uh, this evening to Alexandra Holtam and Ashley Smoke, um, and we're talking about the safe supply. Um, Ashley, I want to turn to you for a minute. I guess the big issue, and we have politicians who are making ridiculous statements like that, it makes it very difficult to get the kind of um, steam behind opportunities and ideas such as a safe supply, a national safe supply. Um, if I was to give you the, the key, so to speak, and said to you, here, you've got the key, you've got, you know, whatever numbers of tens or hundreds of million dollars of available through the government. How would you fix the current situation? Well, I think I would expand safer supply because in my experience, I'm someone on safer supply. And in my experience, I've had vast improvements in my health in my social life in my ability to make money in like in all aspects of my life and it's because safer supply doesn't just prescribe medication it also provides health care and other um other things that aid your social determinants of health and actually impact the rest of your life and not just your drug use so i think that is the biggest the that is the biggest help that or the biggest thing that we're going to have to help us to get out of this crisis but i don't think i think we need options as well i think safer supply is one option and the model we have is one option but i think we can go past that if we had the the ability so um if i can ask and if i'm asking you a question that you're not comfortable with just say you know pass and, I, and we're good with that um but since you are um in a program i assume in a program uh does your program so for example your drug of choice was what and your drug and the drug that they're providing you a safe supply of is the same drug or not it's not the same okay um I so was, for, yeah no go ahead yeah go ahead please tell me no i was taking other opiates um on the street but safer supply it was giving me something else it, they give you hydromorphone right now yeah. in yeah. ontario exactly so uh and, and i think that's great now uh, before we get to the whole hydromorph thing and as it comp competes and compares to let's say methadone or suboxone because we can go there in a second but the the um are you getting like, are they providing you some kind of therapy as well or, or someone to talk to or someone to follow you as a, as a caseworker or is it just the safe supply? Are you getting a, like a pretty rounded uh, program or are they, are they just managing your, your, uh, your, um, your daily um, medication? 
No. So I get, I get a case manager, a counselor, court support. Um, I get physiotherapists. I can even get dental if I want. Like, it depends on the the program. Definitely. Um, I'm in a community health center program, but I think there's so there's so many different opportunities. And once you have your foot in the door and you're getting care, it gives you the ability to then get referred to other care providers afterwards. So I think it's just even getting into programs that don't have all those extra supports gives you the ability to work on getting those supports in some way. So uh, I think it's amazing. And and I'm just, uh, I'm so proud of the work you're, you're doing and the life you're trying to make. And, and it, I know how difficult it can be. And uh, yeah, I just, good for you is all I can say. I'm certainly behind you big time. Um, no, in my opinion, like people don't understand, there's something called methadone, suboxone. We, tr- we treat the, the, the ca- Canadians, in Ontario especially, but in Canadians, we treat thousands of people every day with a government supply of methadone uh, to help them stay off of opioids. Cost the governments millions of dollars. People have to come in and get their, their, their meds on a daily basis, sometimes weekly if, you're, if you earn up to that. Sometimes you get to see a doctor for a minute. Not a lot of therapy going on. In my opinion, and, I, and I'm with you, by the way, Ashley, in my opinion, the difference between hydromorph and, and and methadone is night and day because when when I deal with patients that are withdrawing and they're coming off a year or so of methadone versus several years of of, of an opioid, including fentanyl, or, or 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 if they're you know trimming down with hydromorph as as a step down, much easier to come off of those drugs than it is methadone or suboxone. People don't understand that. So why aren't we just providing everybody with hydromorph if that's the opportunity versus versus switching them over to methadone where you know, frankly, the come down later on, the dependency is so much greater than any of the opioids that I've seen on the street. Would you would you not agree? I I would agree. However, I think with the the strength of fentanyl and how strong it is and people's tolerances, I find a lot of people are on methadone, cadian and hydromorphone right now. Um, but once you're on safer supply i find it's a, a lot easier to come off of the medication or come down yeah, yeah. personally yeah. yeah it's the garbage that's in the drug itself um alexandra holton knowledge mobilizer expert with national safer supply community um we got a little bit of time left here um do you see light at the end of this tunnel and if so what does it look like I mean, I, I think definitely on the, the better days, I do see light at the end of the tunnel. Um, for sure. I mean, I think that Ashley spoke really beautifully to kind of that need yeah. for expanding those those options for safer supply. Um, that's definitely a bit of a light, right? And I think that that can look like um, a prescribed like medical program that can also look like um, community, like peer-led programs that are like more demedicalized models and safer supply programs that are being provided kind of like within community itself. I also think that there's a lot of work that we can do and that has been done and is being done around uh, decriminalization. So the decriminalization of drugs themselves and the people who are using them, um, as well as making a regulated drug supply um, that is, you know, federally uh, funded and available to to all people who need it. I, I, those are the the lights at the end of my tunnel. <laughs> I don't know if they're the yeah. same for for Ashley, but definitely for uh, me. Yeah. There, there, I had a guest on a couple of months ago. Um, we were talking about a vending machine. Um, mm, yes, the MySafe vending machine. Vending in, yeah, the vending machine yeah. in Vancouver, which I thought was mm-hmm. super cool. Um, oh, they're fantastic! Really... And wouldn't it be so, awesome if we had one of those in each rural and remote yeah, exa- uh, yeah, community exactly. everywhere yep. in this country? Wow! Yeah, that would be exactly. fantastic. So yeah, I'd like to be able to, if I won the if won the fifty five million, I'd be all over that tomorrow, and I'd be sponsoring <laughs> it. But since I haven't, um, with the government issues that we're faced with, uh, both Ashley and Alexandra, um, we've got time for uh, for one more answer here. But um, how how are we going to get the the people in government to understand? 
that were that the people on the street that or people that not necessarily on the street, people that are suffering uh, with uh, issues that require uh, street medication for the time being to help them through the days that they're not evil and they don't have horns and they're not out robbing and stealing and cheating from people, especially if we're providing a safe place for them, uh, for folks to, to get the meds they need, whether they're prescribed otherwise or otherwise. In this case, Ashley's uh, medication, as far as I'm concerned, whether it's hydromorph or anything else, if it's prescribed by a doctor, um, she's in the right program, right? Um, so, uh, Ashley, I'm going to let you take us home. Um, last answer, got about a minute or so left. How do we turn the minds of politicians around so that everyone's not afraid? Got about a minute. I think we empower people who use drugs to tell their stories. And we we give safe spaces so that people can can share their experiences and feel safe doing so, so that politicians can hear us, so we can get in those spaces. And have people help us get in the doors. And is so, there yeah. such a, is there, is there such a movement underway? Do you think? The Ontario network of people who use drugs and the Canadian association of people who use drugs try really hard. And I think we're getting there. We're in with public health at least. So <laughs> we're starting. <laughs> Okay, so let me tell you both something. You've got time on my show. Whenever you think you need it, just let us know. Let our producers know if we can provide a platform for you and anyone else that wants to speak their minds so the governments pay attention. Uh, I'm all for it, and I'm more than prepared to give up time on our show and uh, make a big deal of it if we can. Love that. Loved having you both on. Wish we didn't have to talk about this. Ashley, all the power to you, man. I hope uh, you keep going in the right direction. Alexandra, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing your thoughts. Yeah.